Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. Civil rights activist and Kansas City native, Tamara Jones, has been a prominent voice among the peaceful protesters seeking action to tackle police abuses and institutional racism. More controversially, she's the Minister of Justice for the New Black Panthers and involved with the New Black Panthers for Self-Defense, two groups that have been criticized by civil rights watchdogs as racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic and militant hate groups. I wanted to get an idea of how Tamara's views on the issue of race were affected by her experience growing up in this still somewhat divided city where I also live. One of the biggest things that uh, stands out in Kansas City with regards to racism, that dividing line, my father was a master draftsman, an architect in the Kansas City area. And so a lot of the structures on the west side of Truce Avenue and southwest of Kansas City, my father helped design. He helped design the blueprints to those structures, and some of them being structures owned by J.C. Nickel. And I don't know if you know much about J.C. Nickel. Um, you may want to, you know, do a little bit of research on him and his structures and his way of thinking. He was highly racist. J.C. Nichols was a local-born real estate developer responsible for building the lavish heart of Kansas City around the plaza. But he sought to stifle African-American advancement by imposing restrictive covenants on his properties that prevented black people from moving in. My father, like I said, he helped build some of those structures. And after the structures were built or designed, uh, he, and uh, I'm talking about J.C. Nichols now, put out a decree that no Negro, no Mongoloid, no Asian, no Hispanic, no one outside of the Caucasian race were welcome in those structures other than the most penal of jobs, and no one could own any real estate with his name on it. So that just kind of gives you an idea of what we were dealing with. As a child, I lived on Troost Avenue. If you've never been to Kansas City, Troost Avenue is a few streets down from Ward Parkway, one of the most expensive and exclusive boulevards in the metro. On the other side of Troost, Along Prospect and the Paseo, you will find struggling neighbourhoods, boarded up homes, and a school district that struggled so badly it wasn't even accredited until recently. But I lived on the side of the street that was east. Now that was okay, but to go on the west side was just something that, it didn't happen. And if you went to the west side, you were all the way over by KU, near Kansas. You know, but nowhere between truce and state line, or truce and I'd say genesee. You know, those areas were just off limits. And you just kind of knew that they were off limits. You didn't even go over that way. We didn't even play on that side. As, and I'm saying it's small children. We didn't even go to Harrison or Charlotte or Campbell or Main Street. We didn't even go over there to play yet alone to shop or anything else. It's just something that was not heard of. With me knowing history, it did not come as a shock to me 
because Missouri was one of the last slave states. So you would kind of imagine, I mean, expect for these type of things to still be around, even into the 2000s. Picking up on that, so Kansas City, Missouri is right next to Overland Park, Kansas. Both cities have approximately about half a million population. Right. But in terms of one of the other differences, and you can tell me what you think, generally crime is connected with poverty. And in Kansas City last year, one in every 64 people were the victims of violent crime. Whereas in Overland Park, right next door, like you said, right across the street, it was one in 480. What to you do those statistics tell us about, I guess, the environment that people are living in that helps to breed crime? Well, I would, uh, I would agree that poverty has its role to play in it, but not just poverty. When we think of the old urban, when you think of the urban core areas, as opposed to an area like Overland Park that is full of jobs, full of potential, full of a great infrastructure, and the economics are better. Those all contribute to a rise or decline in crime. But then we also have, on the Kansas City, Missouri side, we have a police department that is finally being weeded out from the corruption for years. And I'm going to say for 35 years, we've been living under corrupt a highly corrupt judicial system. This goes through uh, Sly James and his and, and his party, corrupt. Emmanuel Cleaver, corrupt. When you say corrupt, how does that, in terms of the policing, or how did that manifest itself in the community? Uh, it manifests itself in poorly kept neighborhoods. It manifests itself in, like I said, no infrastructure no job, all of the money being funneled into entertainment districts and being put back into the pockets of the politicians. I know of murderous family members of politicians that have never served a day and that are still out committing murders today. I witnessed a murder firsthand at the age of 14. And even through all that time, the police have been so corrupt. There's been no accountability. I'm a law student. Every prosecution's case starts at the crime scene. It's determined by what the police do or don't do can cost either can either lead to a conviction or not. So when the police are not doing what they're supposed to do, when they arrive at crime scenes, then it's it's impossible to prosecute a case. Now we also deal with corrupt prosecuting attorneys. We just recently had that big case where a gentleman was released and it turned out the prosecutor essentially was found out to have just been corrupt all along. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we, we've dealt with that. In the last, I'm going to say, up until the election of Quentin Lucas, even during his first year, we were experiencing a lot of police brutality and excessive force, abuse of power. We were dealing with that on a major level. In 2017, there were a particular group of police officers that patrolled the area of the city north of town where a lot of our projects or low-income housing apartments are. Mm -hmm. And these particular officers literally would tell the different 
gang members and drug dealers in our neighborhood that as long as nobody got hurt, they didn't care how much dope got sold. So they just kind of washed their hands of their responsibility. They, yeah, they were getting paid even. They weren't fighting any crime or they, they weren't being proactive to head off violent crime. Because we all know, I mean, come on, let's not kid ourselves. Drug dealing and things like that only promote violent crime. There is nothing good that comes out of it. It only promotes violent crime. So if they're not even trying to get a handle on the drug sales and the gun, illegal gun dealing that's going on in our neighborhoods, then how can they be fighting crime? It's impossible. So these are the things that they allow to go on. Now, they're not going to come on the police in Overland Park. Like we were saying, before, they're not allowing that to go on in their neighborhoods and in their city. But it is so prevalent in the Kansas City area, not because there was a police shortage, you know, or anything like that. We had up until recently, we had a massive police force, but nothing was being done. The only thing that our police force was doing was abusing, harassing and killing the homeless community, it wasn't safe for anybody to really, I mean, people were afraid, I mean, all over the nation, but especially by KCPD, to get pulled over because just your tag, I mean, people were in fear, not because they were in fear of getting a ticket, but in fear of what the police might send them through. You don't have to delve very deep to find hard evidence of Tamara's allegations about police corruption. In 1992, FBI investigation found corruption to be endemic, accused police officers of routinely beating black citizens and for allowing the crack epidemic to run rampant. More recently, a Kansas City detective was found guilty of the involuntary manslaughter in 2019 of Cameron Lamb. Another detective, Roger Golubsky, at the time of recording this podcast, is under a grand jury investigation for sexually exploiting 18 women who he then pressured into serving as informants against wrongly accused suspects such as Lamont McIntyre, a man who was exonerated and released in 2017 after being wrongfully convicted of a double homicide. They've picked people up and never arrested them, pick them up, go hide them out in these hidden bunk. They have bunkers and hidden cabins or trailers that they'll hold people's family members in for days on end, never charging them with a crime. And then they'll miraculously just drop them back off on the street. Family members are calling around to all the jails. They're looking for their loved ones. They're calling hospitals to the point where they're, they're thinking that their loved one is missing or possibly dead. And the whole time the police has been holding them. You're alleging that the KCPD did something Absolutely. similar to what we saw with the CIA after 9-11 where they kidnapped people and took them off to Guantanamo without proper due process. Absolutely. And, I, and I'm not just speculating. I know this firsthand because not only am I a member of the Panthers, but I work with several organizations in Kenya. And these are the things that we focus on, you know, and have focused on for 10 years. I've worked with several organizations, one being East Meets West of Truth. I've done some work with the Innocence, the KC Freedom Project, who helped to get Kevin Strickland free. And now we're working on getting Keith Carnes free, in addition to several other individuals. We work with the homeless community 
all along Prospect Avenue where they were just totally ravishing the homeless community. And I mean, dogging them out, dogging them out to where myself and other leaders, we would go and just hang out on Prospect, predominantly 35th and Prospect. We would hang out all day, every day, just to kind of let the, our presence be there because it, it meant more protection for our homeless community against the police department. You'd said that since Mayor Lucas came into office, things have improved. So is this what we're talking about here, this police abuse? Is this something we're talking about trying to free people and get justice for past events? Or is this something that is still an issue? It has gotten better since he's been in office. It's gotten substantially better. I believe that it'll continue to get better as long as there is not so much resistance from the government. He can only do what he can do. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, after all, he's the mayor, not the governor. He's trying to get our city together. And one of the things that we want is local control of the police department. No more fraternal order of police. How can the police investigate the police? They'll never suffer any kind of accountability or prosecution as long as they govern themselves. A lot of people don't realize that in Kansas City, Missouri, and I'm sure it's like this in a lot of cities, they think that their police department is part of their city government, and it's not. They just ride the umbrella of the city government for funding reasons. But it's like they're their own entity. They bought their own boss. They stand alone so that they can get those tax revenue dollars as part of their budget. And so that's something that we are steadily pushing for, is local control of the police department by those that pay their wages. Coming up, we discuss the new Black Panthers. investigated all of them and never found the explanation to them. We, at the time, we really didn't know how humans would respond to those gene forces. 
when you have secrets, you're invariably going to have people who think there's a huge conspiracy at work. If ufology was a religion, Philip J. Glass would be Satan. You can call yourself anything. You can call yourself Pinocchio. You're not a Christian. You're a liar. We are still the peaceful people that was shipped over here. It's just, hey, we got guns too. It ain't so funny once the rabbit got the gun. You're involved in several organizations. One of the ones that you're involved with, the New Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, has attracted controversy. The Anti-Defamation League have called it the largest organized anti-Semitic and racist black group in America. And Hashim Nzinga, the former leader, had been quoted a few years back as saying, every white man and Jew is a devil by nature. A former original Black Panthers member, Albert Howard has said the group is a collective of racist reactionary thugs and the tools of the counterintelligence program. How do you defend uh, those kind of comments, even from one of the leaders of the group? I mean, is that the mantra of that organization? Well, first, I would have to tell you about myself. Now, while I am uh, affiliated with the New Black Panther Party, my teachings come from 1966, the original. Okay. My teachings do not come from Hashim and Zinga. My teachings do not derive from Dr. Khalid Muhammad. Those are not where I got my teachings from. My teachings trickle down from the original founder, Bobby Seale. Mm -hmm. Okay, we never stood for racism, regardless of who it was coming from. So while you quoted Hashim and Zinga as saying what he said, I don't agree with. I don't agree with it. I consider myself a modern-day Harriet Tubman. And what I know is Harriet Tubman would have never accomplished the things that she were able to do, freeing the slaves, had it not been for a choice few Jewish and Caucasian people. She would have never got it done. So I believe that good and evil comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. And we can't put any one face or color on any of it. So that part, and, and my comrades know that I don't agree. They don't hold it against me. And I give them their entitlement to whatever belief they believe. But I ask that they know, and I ask that they don't try to push it off on me. I don't believe that the New Black Panther Party is one of the largest racist or anti-government, anti-Semitic groups. Absolutely, I don't. I mean, we've got others bigger than that. Hell, we've got Antifa. <laughs> Antifa is more anti-Semitic and anti-government than, than the New Black Panther Party. And if those that said these things about New Black Panther Party knew anything, they'd know that we are no longer on the terrorist list. Essentially, it sounds like what you're saying is that it's become more moderate, more of a broad house with people with less extreme views over time. Is that accurate? Those that came up uh, straight under Dr. Khalid and under Hashim and Zinga, they're programmed to believe, and that's what they believe. You know, that's what they believe. It is my hopes that they would one day come away from those racist beliefs. And, and that's the only part I challenge is the racist part of it. Because I know that good and evil comes in all colors. 
as far as the anti-government, I think that that's part we need to hold on to. We need to hold on to those beliefs and mm-hmm. those views because without them, we're not as strong. We haven't waged any wars. We haven't waged any wars against anyone. I mean, even the incident of the setting of fire of the White House the other year, uh, we didn't do it. Protesters in Black Lives Matter burnt the White House. We just stood guard and made sure the people didn't get hurt. That building can be rebuilt. The lives of the people cannot be restored. And that's what we're around for. We're around to protect the people, to look out for the people, to fight for the rights, to stop injustices being done against the people. And that is our only concern. We could care less about their structure. Do you then advocate in some instances not saying you yourself do it, but if people want to start fire or burn down a building or violent attacks, are there circumstances where that is okay? Or is that something that just some people have been driven to do, but personally you don't think that's the correct path? When you say violent attacks, are you saying violent attacks on a structure? I mean like on a person. Oh, I don't condone. Well, you know, it's like this. We've been at war. There have been violent attacks on on my people for over 400 years. So what I will say is if then one day we decide to fight back, then we war. And that's all I can say about that. If we war, we war. I plan to die with my firearm in my hand. That's how I feel about that. If we war, we war. I mean, I have to be honest. I wish that there was a peaceful resolution. But even if we don't war, the world is getting... Every year, the world is getting worse around us, whether we go to war or not. So I say, what's the possibility that we'll end up in war? I think it's pretty great. You do? I do. To that point, though, in the media, especially Fox News, right-wing media, they tend to categorize anyone who supports Black Lives Matter or the Black Panthers or, you know, even just people uninvolved in those groups who are like Colin Kaepernick, he's taken the knee, as being existential threat to the country. And then in terms of battling that, we have all these congressmen and Fox News consultants going on about their Second Amendment right to defend themselves and posing with their guns. What you're saying is, that's exactly what you're doing. You have a Second Amendment right. You're not doing anything different than these people are saying. Is is that correct? I'll give you the answer to it. It's like this, okay? I'll give you a scenario at first. The African race of people in America, the descendants of the slaves, are the only nationality of people derivative from Africa that have never warred against the United States. Every other nation that has ever warred or that the United States has ever warred against has received reparations. Everybody but the African slave. Now, like I said, our people have been oppressed and have been warred against for over 400 years. And now all of a sudden, in the very, on the very land that we've been oppressed, killed, kept in poverty, done wrong, all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of us are bearing arms. Now, if you were in a room, say for instance, with nothing but your enemies and they all had guns, would you feel too comfortable? No. 
No, you wouldn't, would you? And that's all that it is. It ain't so funny once the rabbit got the gun. It ain't so funny once the rabbit got the gun. So it's not that we're so dangerous or we're as dangerous as we were 400 years ago. Only the playing field is getting leveled. And not only that, we have other races of people that are willing to stand and fight with us. We're not alone anymore. And that's the scary part. That's the scary part for them. Not that, you know, we are still the peaceful people that was shipped over here. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. It's just, hey, we got guns too. Changing tack slightly. You've said that you are fearful that things may escalate into a war. But what do you think individuals and government leaders could and should do to improve the situation where we don't have this divide that in Kansas City we see at Truist Avenue, but you see it in all over the country in different cities where you have this dividing line and how, how communities are funded, how people live, how the police operate. What steps should happen to, to rectify this in your view? Well, in my view, I don't really, <laughs> in my personal view, I don't see things getting any better. There are things that can be done to, they can start by, one, and I'm talking about the federal government, give reparations where reparations is due. Repair what you have broken. My people will never feel satisfied until that one thing is done, first and foremost. So we'll be always toe-to-toe ready to fight. Because you owe us money. You owe us land. They owe us land, you know? And I'm not saying you, Dan, but the government. They owe us money. They owe us land. They owe to repair what they have broken. We need more police accountability. But it doesn't just start with the police because that's the only one facet of the government. Just like President Trump and President Biden gave out executive orders, they can pass other executive orders to change the lives of the oppressed. But they've got to do it. They can make housing better. They can make wages better. They can do no taxes for, for the impoverished or for the poor. They can do things to make things better. But the ball's in their court, and they've got to do it. Shit runs downhill. I don't know what else to say, but I don't see things getting any better. For, for my people or anybody else's, it's just not the time to live. And I'm going to leave it right there. Well, I appreciate you talking to me very honestly and candidly. I think I'm more hopeful than you as far as the future goes. Well, we'll see. I mean, I hope for the better, but I'm prepared for the worst. You be blessed now, Dan. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.